start off by reading a section of scripture for you. This is Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 26, and we're continuing our series on progressive as, we, as we're examining the, the, the teachings and the, um, uh, what I'm just going to call the heresy of the progressive Christian movement, because uh, it's making a lot of headway in our, in our world, and we need to be able to identify this stuff, and that's the whole reason why we're doing this. So this first piece, piece of scripture, Matthew 19, 16 through 26, reads like this. It says, now behold, one man came and said to him, him being Jesus, good teacher, what good thing shall I do? that I may have eternal life. I hope you can read the arrogance in that statement. So he said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said, all these... I have kept from my youth. I know you said only one one is good, and that's God, but man, I'm a close second. So what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples had heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would open our eyes today to your word of truth. I pray that your spirit would enter us and we would have the courage to live out what we are learning here today. Amen. So in this passage, the man comes to Christ with a question. And it's a question that all of us wrestle with, and that is, how do I get to heaven? How do I get to heaven? That's really the question. How do I get to heaven? This life isn't all there is. How do I get to what's next? Now, Jesus knows that this particular man is not interested in actually learning what it takes to get to heaven. This man is interested in being praised in the public view. He wants to stand before the man of God and and in front of everyone hear the man of God say, nothing, you're awesome. I'm so glad you're here because everybody else needs to be aware of the level of your awesomeness so that they may one day aspire to be like you. That's what this guy wanted to hear, and Jesus knew it. So Jesus tries to answer his question, but he answers it in a way that this man is not prepared for. And Jesus does it in what would be considered by today's standards a very unloving way. He kind of humiliates him in front of everybody. How rude. Jesus was not interested in in praising his righteousness. Instead, Jesus shows him the truth about himself. Jesus makes him aware of his lack. He helps the rich man who thinks he's got everything see how utterly incapable he is to be made right with God by simple human action. Think about this. Jesus is, is doing the most loving thing he can. In relationship with this guy, he is showing him how completely incapable he is in attaining righteousness in God's eyes from his own actions. 
was the most loving thing Jesus could do to someone who was obviously that arrogant. He had to bring him down to a level of understanding. Jesus loved him enough to put his need for a savior out in front of everyone so that everyone could see it. Now, let me ask you a simple question. How many of you want Jesus to love you that way? Where at the height of your arrogance, Jesus is willing to put your issues in full view of the public so that they can be confronted. (laughs) No. But we have to remember that Jesus loves us beyond our earthly home. His goal is our heavenly home. This is just a way station, folks. We live here and we have to live here well. But this isn't our goal. So as we're walking through this journey and trying to understand this progressive Christian movement, one of the things I warned you about in the very beginning is that we're going to run into things that offend our sensibilities. Our modern sensibilities tend to be angled towards Western American 21st century views. That's not necessarily a great way to view the Bible. It's not necessarily a great way to view the love of God. When you start looking at the truths of historic or true Christianity, inevitably we're going to be offended in one way, shape, or form, usually in multiple ways. The truths of Christianity are going to challenge how we process things like right and wrong, good, bad, moral, and immoral, or more importantly, godly and ungodly. And today is one of those days where we're going to challenge a very common, very popular term that's used not only wrongly by the progressive church, but used wrongly by a lot of us. That word is love. Love. It seems so harmless. Love one another. The progressive church uses the term love with their own definition. And it is the default answer to just about any issue that they look at. They view the term love synonymous with the term acceptance, which sounds good, right? If you love someone, you'll accept them. But does it end there? Is that all love is? Is love simply acceptance? Parents, you, you, you love your children unconditionally, right? You accept your kids? Do you accept your child as a toddler and just expect them to be that way the rest of their life? How many of you want to be spoon-feeding and changing your diaper-wearing 40-year-old because you didn't want to pressure them to change or better themselves. You just wanted to love them as they were. See, that's not how it works. Loving parents supply their children with discipline and training and expectations and standards. They do that because they love their kids. Isn't that funny how we don't want to see God that way? You see, in the progressive church, just about anything can be solved with the, uh, this idea of their view of love and acceptance. You want to be sexually immoral? No problem. Just love them. You want to be a drug addict? No problem. Just love them. You want to be an adulterer? No problem. Just love them. Do you want to spend, do you want to be a good person, a good parent, a good spouse, an all-around good guy? No problem. Just love them. 
You want to spend your days doing whatever you want, whatever makes you happy, as long as you don't get caught or break the law? No problem. Just love them. It sounds good, doesn't it? You see, because if we just love other people where they are and we allow them to love us where we are, then we're obviously good people and God will welcome us into heaven because we're loving. Now, it's that sounds so good and it sounds so Christian, but the question you have to ask is how do you define love? How do you define what love is? See, when you're having conversations about difficult things, you have to define your terms, like moral. Moral, some people will say moral just means socially acceptable. You get enough people to say yes to something, and it's immoral. Moral just means legal, right? You know, a couple of years ago, marijuana was immoral. Now it's moral. No, it was stupid then. It's stupid now. You know why they call it dope? (laughs) Nothing about it changed. Doing 85 miles an hour through a school zone is immoral during the school year and the summer. (laughs) Just want to point that out. Lying on your taxes is immoral, no matter who's in government. It's the same thing. So the question is, how do you define what love is? Now, the the progressive Christians define love through social, morally relativistic, constantly changing human reasoning. Love is going to be defined by the needs of society today. There is no timeless application of love. There is no timeless truth of love. Love is what that person needs at the moment. Sounds good, doesn't it? This is so well-crafted. It makes me feel good about myself. I'm so loving! I see people posting things online a lot from churches that will go to on missions trips to inner cities. They won't connect. They don't often connect with churches in the inner cities. They just take the kids. They go. They do some street ministry. They hand out some food. They hand out whatever clothes. And then they come home. And they talk about how amazing the trip was for them. Look at the good work that I did. And it's is it good work? Of course it is. But no one talks about the spiritual health of the people that they connected with and where they left them. I hear people all the time go, I led five people in the sinner's prayer. Great. Where are those people now? Oh, well, I I don't know. Seriously? You bring them to this place where they think that because they said this, 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 this little, this little rhyme or whatever you want to call it, that suddenly now they're right with God and their life is going to be fine for the rest of it. Really? That's not what Jesus told us to do. He didn't tell us to go into all the world and lead people through Billy Graham's sinner's prayer. He told us to go into all the world and make disciples. Teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. That's the great commission. The prayer of salvation is great, but it's just a start. Our responsibility doesn't end there. It begins there. It's very unloving. To lead someone in the sinner's prayer and then send them back out into the world with no understanding. It's very unloving. I've watched more people think that they're all of a sudden good and then go so far and so deep into sin afterwards because they had nothing to hold them up. But it's okay, I got one more notch. 
You know, on my, on my people I led in the, in, the, in the sinner's prayer this year, that's great, that's wonderful, but there's more to it than that. See, within their argument, within the progressive argument, is the notion that there are absolutely no truths, there are absolutely no standards, only your truth. See, I can't bring you my truth. I can't bring you God's truth. I have to help you understand your truth. See, it's good for you. Well, then it's good. Sounds great, right? So love is whatever it means to you. So if I'm showing love to you, then I should be good. God's going to accept me because God is love. See, this is the battle over love. Part of the reason for this battle is that the world we live in wants to embrace just about anything and any behavior and try to find some way of making it acceptable. You would be amazed at the laws that are coming out now that are trying to be pushed into the books that Christians aren't aware of because no one in the media wants to talk about. It's the last thing they want to do. Think about this. Today we have people trying to push the legalization of every kind of drug. Every kind of drug. We have people trying to push for the uh, legalization of every type of pornography, including pedophilia, because it's just normal. It's just love. This is the argument, folks. There's a very popular TED Talk about how we need to change our ideas about pedophilia because it's just normal. Really? The thing, I actually listened to it. It's about 35 minutes long. The thing that scared me the most about that talk was the people in the audience going, you're so brave. We need to learn to love these people. Yes, we do. But can we define love, please? Because if defining love means accepting that as okay, no. No. Let's define love as it's supposed to be intended. See, this, this whole push is a well-intended global push for universal acceptance and tolerance, which sounds so great because the church should be accepting. The church should be tolerant. It is the church's responsibility to bring the truth of the gospel to people, not to force it on them or expect them to live it. We should not be getting into people's lives and telling them how they're supposed to live or forcing them into some sort of mold that we have predefined. The people around you who don't want anything to do with God, you let them live their life because you can't save them anyway. We don't need to constantly be reminded, reminding every gay person we come across in, you look like a really nice person, it's too bad you're going to hell. Well, someone's got to love them. Uh, that's not loving. Might be true. Not very loving. The problem with these ungodly movements is most, most Christians that I know are willing to accept people the way they are. The problem within these movements is that acceptance isn't enough. There is a basic innate human desire to be right with God. The standards of God are written on the hearts of all men, all women. We know the truth. We know that at the end of our time, 
we're going to stand before a righteous God, whether people admit it or not. There is a desire in everyone to be right with God and to be told that they're okay. So the problem with these movements is not that they don't, that they want to be accepted. It's they want to be justified. They want to be declared righteous and good. Not only am I going to accept you the way that you are, I'm going to declare you right with God. And there are denominations all over the world who have been willing to do that. All over the world. Willing to declare what God calls sin, what God calls irredeemable, what God calls that's going to lead you to condemnation. They call that good, right, and even holy. Holy. Before a righteous God. I got news for you. It's not, and it never will be. Because it's not up to us. Within biblical uh, historic Christianity, acceptance in the eyes of God has nothing to do with the individual Christian. Can I say that again? Within historic biblical Christianity, acceptance in the eyes of God has nothing to do with the individual Christian. You do not in any way, shape, or form have the ability or the right to tell anyone that what God has called bad, that it's good. We don't have the right to declare anyone saved. You don't know the heart of the individual. The best thing we can do is walk this journey out together, hand in hand, arm in arm, hold one another up, and just try to live this thing out. When salvation says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, it's not kidding. The fear and trembling isn't that you're going to mess up, because we're all going to mess up. The fear and trembling is that God is serious. He's not making suggestions. Thou shalt now read my book of holy options. If you choose to be monogamous in your relationship, here's how to do it. If you choose to be polyamorous, well, we'll talk later. It's not, it doesn't work. Some of you are trying to figure out what polyamorous means. Uh, It's fine. Talk to me later. I'm not going to talk about it now. There is only one standard by which we live. There is only one standard by which we will be judged, and that is the word of God. Now, this is where progressive Christianity steps in with a joyful compromise. Now, we've already learned over the last few weeks that they do not hold the word of God to any level of authority. The word of God is just a book about God. It's not God's word to us. That's their view. And because of that, it leads them down certain paths. They claim that God would never force onto humanity the kind of standards that fundamentalists like me talk about. They believe that because God is love, which he is, then you're fine just the way you are, which you're not. Even those of us sitting right here who have been Christians for a long time, you're still not fine the way you are. You're not done. You've not reached perfection. You know? It's a journey, and it will last until we draw our last breath. Throughout the New Testament, there are four basic words that get translated love. Storge, phileo, eros, and agape. Storge is brotherly or friendship love. Phileo is where we get our word philanthropy. It's about helping one another. Eros, the word erotic, where we get its, its romantic love. And then agape, which is all-encompassing, selfless love. The type of love that would give everything that you have to benefit somebody else. You empty yourself for the benefit of another. 
Now, in all of the New Testament, the word, the, the word agape is used in, de, in description to our relationship with God and God's relationship with us. That's the type of love that we're talking about. God is in all of the, uh, the, def- the definitions of love, but agape best describes the type of love that Scripture talks about. When you start looking at, at Scriptures like John 13, 34, and 35, it says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Empty yourself for the benefit of everybody else. As I have loved you, you should also love one another. I did this for you as an example. You do it with other people. By this, all will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, if you're willing to empty yourself for the benefit of another. 1 Peter 4, 8, above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. So it's pretty self-defining, isn't it? We learn about this kind of love by learning about the life of Christ as outlined in scriptures and scripture alone. There's really no other place to learn about this kind of love. It's all in scripture. The very first thing we learn about the love of God is that our understanding of it and our understanding of it always begins in the same place. The understanding of the love of God, to understand the love of God, you have to first understand that we are sinners in need of a savior. If your, love, if, your, if your understanding of the love of God does not begin there, that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, then you will not understand the true application of the love of God. Because it is all grounded there. It begins there. And it ends there. We are sinners in need of a Savior. A lot of babies here today. A lot of kids here today. Every one of your kids and every one of your babies are sinners in need of a Savior no matter how cute they are, right? No matter how innocent they might seem. Like I said, might seem, okay? They're still sinners in need of a savior. And we got a lot of parents in, the, in, in churches around the world today that are not willing to talk to their kids about their own life of sin, their own need for a savior. My kid grew up in church. They're fine. <laughs> really? I've seen a lot of kids that grew up in church and I got news for you. They ain't fine. <laughs> okay. Just ask any of the kids, church workers. Is my kid an angel? <laughs> There's two types in the Bible. <laughs> okay. So sure. There was some of you are trying to work that one out. What do you, what do you mean? Um, in the progressive church, the term repentance, which is what we're talking about. Understanding that you are a sinner in need of a savior means repentance, coming to a place of repentance. In the progressive church, the term repentance is a bad, bad, bad word. It's a bad, bad, bad word. It is so bad and it is so disdained that it has been redefined by a large portion of the progressive church. Repentance no longer means repentance. Repentance means something completely different for them. Now, I want to show you a little clip of a progressive theologian. This man is a... Seminary graduate. He graduated from Moody Bible Institute. His name is Brandon Robertson. And I want you to hear him talk about what repentance means to him. He's, he's openly gay, and he's a self-prescribed progressive theologian. This is his teaching on repentance. The word that's most often translated repent in our Bibles is the word metanoia in Greek. Meta literally means to expand. Noia means your mind. So when Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel, he's not saying anything about being sorry for our sins. No, he's actually telling us to expand our minds so that we're able to begin to grasp more of this new reality that he calls the kingdom of God. 
Um, <laughs> first things first, I have a set of digital Bible, uh, Bible commentaries. Um, I bought it for, for college, and I bought the, the highest one I can. It has around 25,000 volumes in it. I searched it for the breakdown of the word metanoia because I have never, never, never heard anyone say that meta meant expand. Never seen it. I've talked to Greek uh, to, to people I know who are who are very well versed in Greek. They've never seen it. Nowhere in my twenty five thousand volume commentary set is that word defined. Expand. Nowhere. So he says, "Meta is expand, and noia is your mind." That's true. But when you break a word up like that, you cause problems, because sometimes when you put a word together, it actually has a different meaning, right? football can you accurately define that by breaking it up into its root parts no because you don't actually kick a football very often most often it's thrown and it doesn't look like a foot how about this one butthead you see when you put the two words together They have a different meaning. You create a new word. The problem is, as a seminary graduate, he knows this. He knows this. So check this out. I decided to do some some research in the Greek outside of normal biblical resources. So I went to a a, a website that actually, actually specializes in breaking down Greek used in Socratic writing or the writing of Socrates. So I want to see how they defined the same word. So here's how they defined meta. The prefix meaning after or behind, changed or altered, higher beyond from the Greek, in the midst of, check this out, in common with, by means of, being in pursuit or quest of. Meta, by itself, to be in common place with, by means of pursuit. Or running next to someone. You understand what I'm saying? You find common place by pursuing where they are. That's just meta. Repent, metanoia, means to pursue God to the point where you are in common place with him and your mind is now in line with his. That's what metanoia means. That's why it refers to your sin. That's why it's always been applied to sin. It has never been applied anywhere else. And if you look at other sections of scripture like Romans 12, 2, it says, do not be conformed by, uh, to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Learn to change the way you think. Check out these scriptures. Mark 1, tell me if you think this means to just expand your mind. Mark 1, uh, 1 15, and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is, is at hand. Open up your mind and believe the gospel. Uh, no, repent. Acts 2.38. Then Peter said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Matthew 4.17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, to, to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Second Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but his long suffering towards us, will, uh, uh, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's the repentance that opens up the door to the love of God where we understand that we are sinners in need of a Savior. 
This is the process. The love of God always brings us back to the same place, a repentant heart. The knowledge that we are sinners in need of a savior. Now, the reason that they avoid these teachings about repentance is because they have to deny what's called the doctrine of the atonement. And I'm not going to get into a long diatribe about what atonement is, but I've got to talk about this just for a second. You see, in order to find repentance, you first have to believe that you have issues. And in a viewpoint where everything goes, no one wants to believe they have issues. They want to believe they're all good. So repentance has to be redefined. Repentance has to be defined as, you know why you think I'm a sinner? Because you just, you're just too narrow-minded. You see, you think that being a drug addict is bad because of your narrow-mindedness. You think a three-year-old can't change their gender because you're narrow-minded. You starting to understand? You think that this lifestyle is wrong because you're just too narrow-minded. No. No. There are absolute standards. There is an absolute truth. And we are accountable to that absolute truth. So the doctrine of atonement basically just means this. It's the work done through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ to allow humanity to receive the forgiveness of sin. That's what atonement is. It is the work that Jesus did on the cross. Now, in Scripture, it's called penal substitutionary atonement. Uh, it's a big $10 word. Don't worry about it. You don't have to remember it. But basically what it means is this, that Jesus took our place. That we were guilty in the eyes of God, and Jesus stepped in and took my punishment for me. I was guilty. If I were standing before a judge, I'm going to jail. I'm going to receive my punishment. And as basically, as we stand before the judgment seat of God, Christ steps in and says, I'm sorry, I've already paid this bill. Anyone ever had their meal paid for at a restaurant? Isn't it cool? You know, the waitress comes over. Yeah, it's uh, already, been, already been taken care of. What? Someone paid your debt. In relationship to our sinfulness to a righteous God, Jesus paid the debt. He took the punishment on himself for us. That's what this means. They don't want to believe that. Because in order to believe that, you are pigeonholed into believing a couple of other things. Think about this. There are two things that you have to believe in order to believe in atonement. And the first one is that you need it. The first thing you have to believe to receive the atonement of Christ is that you're a sinner in need of a savior, which means you have issues, which means you're not right, which means you're not good with God, which means your life isn't perfect. You're the rich young ruler coming to God saying, I'm amazing. What do I need to do to get into heaven? Tell everybody how awesome I am. And Jesus says, not only are you not awesome, you have real problems in your life. And we have to understand that we are sinners in need of a savior, which means that maybe, just maybe, the standards that we have in our life aren't right. You ever been confronted with an understanding of something that you always thought was okay, and now all of a sudden you realize it is not? For a lot of Christians, 
depending on how old you are when you come to the Lord, sometimes it's your language. I used to think that was fine. All my friends talk like that. Uh, nope. How hard was it to break that habit? <laughs> Some of us haven't broke it yet. Right? What about the types of movies you watch? I mean, it might not be full-on porn, but really, there's just a little nudity in it. Okay, you're going to watch it with your kids? No! <laughs> Why are you watching it? I like the story. <laughs> yeah, okay. In the 80s and 90s, guys used to say they liked the articles in the magazines, too. I didn't believe them then. See, there are things that we want to hang on to that we can't hang on to as our understanding, as God is changing our mind, teaching us how to view things in his way, helping us be renewed, helping us come to that place of repentance where we realize that our thinking on this subject is out of line with God and now our our thinking has to change and it gets in line with God and therefore now that we know what God expects, now we've got to do this horrible thing. We've got to do it. Because you see, repentance is not simply knowledge. Knowing you're a sinner in need of a savior, it doesn't matter if you don't actually follow the savior. You think about this. Jesus goes to the cross. He goes to the grave. Three days later, he's risen. He spends 40 days teaching people. He goes, he's ascended to heaven. And what do we read? Some doubted. Some doubted. Are you kidding me? He was dead three days ago. Some still doubted. You see, knowing is different than living. You might know that this is wrong, but if you don't live it, it doesn't matter. That's a repentant heart, knowing what is in line and righteous with God and doing that. But that means you have to admit that you're not. They don't want to do that. They want to just accept you the way they are. They want to be loving. The second thing you have to do is believe that Jesus' work on the cross has provided the atonement. You have to believe that. Confess with your mouth the Lordship of Christ. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You cannot find the atonement if you do not also believe that it came from Jesus' work on the cross. They're two completely separate things. You have to embrace them. Admitting that you need atonement means admitting that there is an absolute standard and that absolute standard is outside of the influence of mankind and that we are subject to that standard. We are accountable to the lawgiver whether we like it or not. Just because you really have to go to the bathroom does not mean you will not get pulled over for speeding. I'm just saying. You may have a good reason and you may have legitimized something to yourself, but that does not make it right. It does not make it good. It does not make it holy. Let me give you another very in-our-face example for today. But we love one another. I got to play around with the algorithms on Facebook and YouTube, but you all know what I'm talking about. 
but we love one another. So it's got to be right with God. No, it's not. Read the rest of your Bible. Not only is it not right with God, it'll never be right with God. It'll be condemned by God. I can accept a person who wants to live in that lifestyle, but I will never refer to them as justified because I can't. It's not up to me. All I can do is bring them the truth. But that's so unloving to bring someone truth. To believe that the cross has provided for us the atoning work for all humanity by paying the price for sin means that you also have to believe the rest of what that same Bible teaches. Man, now we've just gotten back into that one thing that they will not do and believe that the Bible is the authoritative, inerrant, timeless, inspired word of God. You see the circle? See, when you deny one, but you want all the benefits that it brings, eventually it will bring you right back around and it'll blow up in your face. If you want this, you also have to believe this. I'm going to end with a short video clip, and I would like you to pay close attention to what the man at the end is going to say. His name is Bart Campolo. And then I'll close. If you reject the doctrine of uh, penal substitution, can you still be a Christian? Um, I would say this. If you don't fully understand the doctrine of penal substitution, but you at least understand that Christ died and paid the penalty for your sins and you accept him as your savior, you can be a Christian. You might not be able to articulate the full doctrine. But to deny that doctrine, to, to say that Christ did not die in your place for your sins is to flatly deny the atonement itself. And it is to deny the, the validation of the Father who raised him from the dead. He was raised for our justification because the penalty satisfied the justice of God. You see, the resurrection was the affirmation that Jesus was who he said he was and that what he did worked. The devil has no claim on him. Sin has no claim on him. Death has no claim on him. Therefore, the good news for the Christian is that when we belong to Christ, all of those things can be said of us as well. Oh, that old rugged cross So despised by the world Has a wondrous attraction for me There's a myth in our culture that Christianity in the West is dying. But if you look closely at the denominations that are hemorrhaging members, it's all the same denominations who have stopped teaching fundamental Christian truths, like the inerrancy of Scripture, uh, like the exclusivity of Jesus and salvation, and the reality of hell. They've given up on teaching these Christian truths, and in the process, they have been emptied of the power that is the gospel. Stained with blood, so divine, a wondrous beauty I see. I tried the gospel. I loved the idea of a loving Jesus. And I kept changing. I kept ignoring Bible verses and underlining different Bible verses. And I kept like bending things around so that I could end up with a God who I could truly love. The problem is, is that once you're done making all those adjustments, I realized that the God I believed in was a God of my own invention. Believe me, the last God I believed in was awesome. 
I loved that guy. He was just like me. Yep. Now, as much as I absolutely abhor what he has done with his life, he was a Bible teacher. His dad is a famous pastor. His dad has gone completely off the rails and has basically walked away from biblical truth. Tony Campolo, in case anyone is uh, familiar with the name. As much as I can't stand what he's done with his life, I will give him credit for one thing. He's honest. He's honest about the reasons why he walked away from the church. He walked away from the church because he didn't like, the, he didn't like God as Scripture presented. He wanted a God that was more like him, that agreed with him, that viewed things the way he viewed them. You see, he wanted God to be transformed by the renewing of God's mind to his instead of the other way around. Isn't it amazing how much this happens? And from the progressive Christian viewpoint, that's the loving God that they preach, a God who will meet you where you are and never ask you to change, a God who's going to accept you as you are and just welcome you into heaven as long as you're a good person. But you see, Scripture defines love in a very, very different way. Scripture defines love for us as recognizing and understanding that we are sinners in need of a Savior and that Jesus is that Savior. And that through Scripture, God outlined what he would do to bring us back to him. And then Jesus stepped out of time and did exactly what God required because we were unable to. He stepped in, did what we were not capable of doing, and that all he's asking us to do is the one thing we don't want to do. Change the way we think about the life around us and do it the way he modeled it. To learn to think like God, to learn to live like God, to learn to talk like God, to learn to work like God, to, 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 to learn to have relationships like God, how to relate to one another the way Jesus would relate to us, how to walk life the way he did. That's all he's asking us to do. And just believe that the penalty for the sin in our life has already been paid. Because here's the truth. If you believe it, you would walk the way he walks. The reason why we don't is because we don't believe it. It's comforting to think about it. But too many of us want the same God that Bart Campolo wants, a God of their own design. So here's a test for you, something you can chew on throughout this week, and I'm going to pray for you and let you go. If you're not sure which God you're serving, the God of Scripture or the God of your own making, here's a couple questions you can ask for yourself. The God of Scripture loves us by bringing us to a place of repentance, helping us see and understand where we have gone wrong, fallen into sin, and he encourages us to draw closer to him by changing the way we think and the way we live to fall more in line with him. That's the God of Scripture. The God of your own design just wants you to be happy. It's the other people who need to change because you are perfect and holy just the way you are. If that's what you're thinking, you're not following the God of Scripture. And I want to be very clear with you. You're in a lot of trouble. 